Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. So good to have you with me this evening. Well, it's summer vacation time, time for travel. Too hot, you say? All right, well, then how about armchair travel? Two stories tonight, both in a travel setting. Our first author tonight is Joseph Roth, or in German, Josef Roth. He was born in 1894 in the little town of Brod in Galicia, at that time part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, now a part of Ukraine. He was an Austrian-Jewish journalist and novelist whose life is characterized by a restless moving about in search of a place that he could comfortably call home. Not surprisingly, he felt most at home in hotels and cafes. He did much of his best writing as he sat in noisy cafes that would have frustrated most writers. He was a close observer of everyday life, especially as it reflected the changing social and political currents of his time. Quite early on, he foresaw the rise of Nazism and wrote of it in ways that set him apart as one of the great 20th century German writers. He died in Paris in 1939. Long neglected after the end of the Second World War, he has received renewed attention with the publication in English of his novel The Radetzky March and collections of his journalism from Berlin and Paris. Recently, a major biography has been published, Kieran Pym's Endless Flight, The Life of Joseph Roth. Tonight's story is as short as any in this series of programs, but I find it fascinating for its close and sharply ironic description of a brief encounter on a train. The Lady on the Train by Joseph Roth A beautiful lady entered the train compartment where I was sitting, leafing through newspapers. She looked at the newspapers, not at me, ordered the porter to put a large suitcase on the luggage rack, sat down, and found she had no change for the porter. It was a long moment filled with the silence of the porter who obviously didn't have a lot of time. Other men are witty in such situations, and their quick wit wins the sympathy of both the ladies and the porters. But I was in danger of being despised by the one and laughed at by the other if I didn't act soon. And so I asked, How much do you get? Received the information and paid the porter. The lady was still looking for change, found a large bill, and, without looking at me, asked if I could change it. No, I said, and the lady continued her search. Her embarrassment must have been very great. I decided I should take pity on her, but it didn't come to that, because I needed all my pity for myself. Should I say, I am delighted to have such a lovely debtor? What a compliment! But wasn't it presumptuous to interrupt her search, and wasn't it a pretty cheap and obvious way to make an acquaintance? After a quarter of an hour the lady found some change, handed it to me, said thank you, and, like me, looked out the window. I grabbed the newspaper and began to read. The beautiful lady got up, stretched, and reached up towards the luggage rack, but she couldn't get hold of the suitcase, and she looked pleadingly. I was forced to take down the excessively heavy suitcase and act as if I didn't mind the weight of her baggage. The lady unlocked the suitcase, releasing a slight scent of perfume, soap, and powder, took out three books, and was apparently looking for a fourth. Meanwhile, I sat there, pretending to read the newspaper, 
and thinking how I was going to put the heavy suitcase back on the luggage rack, because there was no doubt that I was doomed to put it back again. The lady found the fourth book, closed the case, and tried to pick it up. Her efforts infuriated me. Why was she acting as if she didn't know I would have to do the work for her? Why didn't she simply and politely ask for the help that custom and practically the law dictated that I should give? And why on earth was she traveling with such a heavy suitcase to begin with? And if she had to have such a suitcase like that, why didn't she at least put the books in a small bag? Why did she have to read at all, when it was clear that she would have certainly been more comfortable speaking to me in the first place, rather than keeping her distance through an hour of reading? My indignation didn't help. I had to get up, say, allow me, and lift the suitcase with superhuman effort. I stood on the seat, the suitcase swayed in my arms, and it might have fallen and crushed the beautiful lady. If it had, I would have felt inconvenience but no remorse. The suitcase was back in the rack, and I collapsed into my seat, exhausted. The lady thanked me and began to read. From this moment on I thought about how best to leave the compartment and the lady. With genuine concern I thought of the many useful items that might still be in the suitcase. The newspaper no longer interested me, and I had come to dislike the landscape. Luckily, a gentleman entered the compartment, a young, slightly impudent, certainly active gentleman, who was undoubtedly much stupider than I was. The lady was no longer reading. After a quarter of an hour the gentleman made a silly joke, and the beautiful woman laughed. He was quick-witted, he could be amusing, and he could probably lift a suitcase. He hadn't a worry in the world. He won the heart of the beautiful lady— and he triumphed over me. I, on the other hand, now regained my composure. I watched the suitcase bouncing up and down with equanimity, my heart stopped pounding, and I followed the movements of the beautiful woman and the unfolding of the adventure with a great fondness. I was happy to sit with pleasant people who cursed me and to whom I was a nuisance. For natures like me, this is the best company. Our second story tonight is a piece of pure Viennese whimsy by the Austrian writer Hermann Barr. Barr was born in Linz, Austria in 1863. A man of wide interests and talents, he studied philosophy, economy, and law in Linz, Vienna, and Berlin. And it was during a long stay in Paris that he discovered an interest in literature and art. He ended up writing some ten novels and forty plays, and also found time to direct plays and to work as a director and dramaturg with the great theaters of Berlin and Vienna. Barr is associated with the school known as Young Vienna, the avant-garde literary movement that gathered in Vienna's famous coffee houses. Just for fun, here's a story by Hermann Barr entitled The Beautiful Wife. I ran into my old friend Dorn on a little side street in Vienna. Servus, I said. At last we get to see you again. Is that any way to be? It's been at least six months. Well, let's have a look. How are you doing? How is marriage treating you? Paul, Paul, who would have thought that of you? I could have sworn. But <laughs> women, you know. Ah, yes, women. 
Paul laughs, takes my arm in his, and we stroll through the city. I start to get sentimental. Paul Dorn, a husband. I still can't believe it. Whatever became of our youth? Do you remember how we used to... You remember Mitzi? But I guess he prefers not to remember, so I drop Mitzi. We walk on, he takes out a cigar, and I look at him from the side. He seems more serious than he used to. He now has a certain bourgeois calm, almost dignity. Yes, marriage. I'm ashamed of being so frivolous in front of him. Look, you know the way I am. With you, it's completely different now. When someone has a beautiful wife like you do... He lets go of my arm and suddenly seems nervous. Oh, come on now, don't you get started too. That's all I need at this point. That's just great. I am literally shocked. But Paul, because it's true. It's always the same. My beautiful wife, my beautiful wife. My friend, I'm really getting fed up. You know, I'm very fond of my wife, but let's be honest. Do you have any idea what it means to have a beautiful wife? My friend, if you don't know what that's like, then you don't know what you're talking about. It takes a lot of patience. I'm telling you, you've got to come from pretty sturdy stock. And he starts whistling fiercely. I think I understand. And I'm really glad. Aha! You see, Paul, this is what they call nemesis. Serves you right. It won't do you any harm to see what it's like to be jealous. Paul looks at me in amazement. Oh, what a monkey you are! It's got nothing to do with jealousy. What are you thinking? No, you're not jealous, I say. I'm actually a bit sorry about that. Not a bit. The thing is, but it's not so easy. You won't understand. The thing is, a beautiful wife would be something really wonderful if only... if only she weren't beautiful. Now you've really lost me. All right, listen. I'll just tell you what happened to me, so you'll get the idea. I could see it would do him good to let it all out. Fine. He lit his cigar again and began. So, imagine the wedding is over and we're moving on. I was very glad. This whole wedding thing can drive you crazy. So we go to Munich. I want to show her the city, visit a few old friends, and then go for a bit to the Bavarian mountains. Well, you can imagine the first few days. I'm very happy. She's very happy and all that. But I start to notice that something isn't right. She's missing something. Something doesn't suit her. What? What could that be? I ask her. I try my best, but she says it's nothing. No, she's very happy. There's nothing wrong with her. She's content. She thinks Munich is lovely. Only, of course, what? She doesn't want to say at first, but finally she comes out with it. The people here are so rude. I don't understand. My God, these good folks are a bit slow and heavy, yes, but rude? No, she says, they're not exactly rude. But just look. You can walk down the street for an hour, and nobody will look at you. Absolutely nobody. That's rude. I don't care. I'm just telling you that it's rude. Do you see what I'm telling you? The lady was offended. The beautiful woman expects some sort of honor guard when she appears. And you really can't ask that of these good people in Munich. 
"'All right, of course, it's easy for you to laugh, my friend. You'll stop laughing soon enough, because that was just the beginning. The next morning I'm sitting downstairs in the Café Maximilian. It's ten o'clock, we want to go to the secession, and my wife is upstairs in our room getting dressed.' You have to get married before you can know what that means, a woman getting dressed. I've been sitting there since nine o'clock. I've already read all the newspapers. Now I'm looking at the ad section. I've had breakfast. I'm already drinking my second beer because I'm embarrassed to have the waitress looking at me, and I'm taking a melancholy look from the table where I'm sitting in the niche of the window out toward the court theater. You know the place. You know where old Ibsen used to sit. It's pretty empty around this time. The waitresses are leaning against the counter. There are just a few students sitting around a big table in the middle and playing Scott. The bar is dark. All you can see are the Saxons' green caps hanging on the wall. It's the Saxon fraternity boys who hang out here. And it's very quiet. You can only hear the students banging on the table when they play. It's half past ten. It's going to be eleven. And now... I've even picked up the Baedeker, reading about footwear for mountain hikes. At the same time, I keep an eye on the door at the back, where she is bound to come. There she is at last. Very elegant, of course, very nice in the colorful English dress, very gracious. She smiles at the cashier and asks the waitress where I am sitting. Smiling, she follows her through the entire café, past the student's table, where they are completely absorbed in their game, you can tell by looking at them. When she is right next to their table, she drops her umbrella. I jump up, but I'm too far away. The waitress bends down. Agatha thanks her. The students play their scot. I ask her what she wants for breakfast, but I notice something is bothering her. She seems offended again. No, she says, but I can't sit at the window— that white wall of the court theater, it's too dazzling. Come on, let's move. And she gets up to sit at another table, right in the middle, next to the students. And as she sits down, she knocks over a chair with newspapers. But the students don't even look up from their cards. I come, pick up the newspapers, ask what she wants for breakfast. I'm as nice as I can be, because I'd really like to get to the secession. She looks at the students playing their scot and then asks me, in the rich melody of her powerful voice, "'Tell me, don't these young people have anything to do aside from drinking beer and playing cards first thing in the morning?' "'My friend, what was I to do? I read desperately in the new free press from Vienna and even in the Cologne newspaper, which has a larger format, but she can't be bothered. She has asked for a chocolate She's holding the spoon very gracefully between her sweet, slender fingers and is getting louder and louder. If their poor parents had any idea, they scrimp and save their money at home so the boys here can play cards and drink beer. Yes, where's the teacher with the stick? I am totally immersed in the Cologne paper, but she doesn't let up. And those green caps, please, on those skulls, they all look like a bunch of porters. You can imagine how I felt. I'm not a coward, but in the summer, on vacation, no thank you. So I make short work of it and say, you don't like Munich, I can see that. It doesn't make any sense to stay here. 
The train leaves for Schlierzee in two hours. My old friend Drescher's there, and they say it's very nice. So let's forget about the secession, let's pack up, and in two hours we'll be on the train. End of discussion. She knows that tone, and knows that there is nothing more to say. We arrived in Schlierzee at four o'clock. I had telegraphed ahead to good old Drescher. He took us to the hotel on the lake, and we got a large room with a magnificent view of the lake and the whole valley. Agatha was a bit tired and went to bed. I took my bike and rode around the lake, through town, to the post office, and so on. I came back around eight. She was sitting in the garden reading a book. At one table were some farmers, at another the priest with the old forester. I reflected, it's quiet here, it's beautiful here. I want to stay here. I leaned my bike against the door and walked over to her. She sat there in a wide white robe and gazed up from her book with her large, quiet eyes dreamily and enthusiastically towards the lake. It really was a lovely picture, but unfortunately, well, you know, here are the farmers, over there the priest with the old forester. The picture lacked an audience. I approached timidly. How are you, my darling? She looked at me. I will never forget that look. Then she said, So, this is Schlierzee. Well, let me tell you, I'm not going to spend two days here. This isn't anything for me. But look, it's really very nice here. The lake? The lake is too small to suit me. This lovely valley. Valleys are unhealthy. They just make people nervous. Any doctor will tell you that. And the mountains all around. I hate mountains. Pause. She finally sums it up. And the food is bad. This Bavarian beer makes you fat, and I don't want to end up looking like a peasant woman. If I'd wanted that, I never would have married. I would have gone to a convent. But you never loved me. Well, I say, if you don't like it here, we'll leave tomorrow. But it gets me down, all this moving around, here and there, always another train to catch, packing every day, every night a different hotel, strange faces. It's just awful. I want to sit quietly somewhere and catch my breath. But what could I do? Agatha is used to being admired. If we go out here in Vienna and go to the theater, to a concert or to a park, everyone's head turns. It's always been that way for as long as she can remember. She can no longer do without it. Without people to admire her, she's like a smoker without cigars. My friend, there's no way to argue. That's just the way it is. And if it doesn't suit you, well, then you shouldn't have a beautiful wife. It's just one way or the other. That's what I was telling myself the next morning. She was still asleep when I was walking alone in the forest. I looked sadly at the shimmering lake, at the serene valley. I so love this area. The people always seem to be singing. How I wanted to stay. Then suddenly an idea came to me. Yes, perhaps it just might work and I ran more than I walked to see Drescher, my dear old friend Drescher, the famous Bavarian comedian. He has a lovely villa there. Well, you know him. You know what he's like, always jolly, always with the most ambitious schemes in mind, 
always a bit absent-minded, messing everything up, but he's the best friend there ever was. Dresher, I say, you have to do me a favor. Look, you know all the people around here. Don't you know a nice young man, a farmer or a clerk from the community, who, for a fee, of course, can admire? What should he do? Admire. Nothing but admiring. My wife is used to it. Now listen, here's how I picture it. I pay for what he eats and drinks, plus an extra three marks for each day, and all he has to do is sit in our garden for two or three hours a day and look at my wife lovingly, lovingly, or shall we say languishingly. Languishingly, says Dresher. It's a deal. I quickly explained to him everything that happened in Munich and that Agatha won't stay here if she doesn't have an admirer. Well, says Dresher, it'll be done. Now just wait a minute. Who is there? I can't get anyone from the theater right now. We need them all ourselves just now. But hang on. Oh, this will be great. Messner, he is just about the most talented guy you ever saw, and he even has a black dinner jacket. Don't you worry about a thing. I'll get him here right away. He's very bright, and I'll have him on the job this afternoon. Admire, you said. I mentioned languishing, I tell him again. Languishing, rolling his eyes, and then maybe he can put his hand on his heart, right? Well then, you can count on me. As for directing, <laughs> you know me. Dear Dresher, thank you very much. Only tell me this. Is he handsome? Are you kidding? What's handsome got to do with it? Women don't care who admires them, just so long as they're admired. You just wait and see. He was right. I tell you, Messner, I just can't describe it. And the man languished. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Dresher is a great director. I went off to the post office in the evening. Agatha stayed in the garden and the languishing Messner never went away. When I came back, I said, I was at the station just now and was looking at the train schedule. It'll be best if we leave tomorrow at ten. Why? asked Agatha in surprise. I really don't understand you. Isn't there anywhere you can sit quietly? Look, it's so beautiful here. The lovely lake. Well, I said, the lake is kind of small. A small lake has a charm all its own. It's much more intimate. And then, to be stuck in the mountains like this? It will do you good. You'll breathe so easily. Ask any doctor. And then look. This constant back and forth, always on the train, packing every day, every night a different hotel, that's terrible for you. Come on, can't we stay? We stayed there for three weeks. Every Sunday, young Messner brought me the bill. Twenty-one marks salary, ten to twelve marks for beer, and about three marks for sausages. As a farewell gift, I had a new dinner jacket made for him in Miesbach. He had worn out the sleeve on his old one with all the languishing. I think, Paul concluded, we're going to go to Schlierzee again this year. You've been listening to The Lady on the Train by Joseph Roth and The Beautiful Wife by Herman Barr. 
May your own summer travels be happy ones. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy. All the best. Thank you.